0: Thanks for pressing play. Almost everything academic ever written about drinking and alcohol is centered on why it is bad for us. On this episode, we have the audacity to ask how does drinking and getting drunk make a difference to humanity? Now, look, before we go much further, it is clear that for some people, drinking is a horrible thing and can lead to tremendous health problems, pro- life problems heartache, and sometimes much worse. And so uh, we're not advocating that. And if you're somebody for whom uh, drinking represents a problem, then uh, please know you have our thoughts and empathy. However, this episode is one that is going to celebrate the difference that drinking has made to society because our guest today has written what might be the first uh, meaningful book that studies how drinking is great for us. And his name is Professor Edward Slingerland, and he's a distinguished university scholar and professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia in Canada. And he's got a new book out called Drunk, how We sipped, danced and stumbled our way into civilization. And we are about to get deep into it. You're listening to Christopher Lockett. Follow your different podcast magazine says we are, quote, the best business podcast. And The Economist once called me, quote, off-putting to some, whatever you say, we are the odd cast for those who value real, different dialogues, not overly produced, highly edited interviews. My friends at NetSuite are the leaders in cloud ERP. Check out NetSuite.com slash different today and check out the platform you need for your business. That's NetSuite.com slash different. And off the top, I also want to thank you for making Category Pirates, our newsletter. It's really uh, not a newsletter. It's a mini book that we publish once a week. Number eight out of all paid business newsletters on the number one newsletter platform, Substack. So thank you for making Category Pirates a number eight charting uh, newsletter. Recent letters have included, or many books have included, The Big Brand Lie, The Meta Problem, where we dig into things that almost nobody is talking about with the new Facebook uh, one of my personal favorites, The Me Disease Why Personal Branding is a Lie, and How Some of the Smartest People in Business Fell for It, and Much More. Go to lockhead.com today and check out Category Pirates. And now, grab your favorite libation, and as Joey Ramone said, hey ho, let's go. Well, Professor, uh, it's great to meet you. And I must tell you, I think I've probably been waiting maybe 40 years for this book of yours.
1: Wow. All right. I'm glad I could finally provide it to you.
0: Well, thank you for finally
1: getting around to it. <laughs> yeah. That's a fun book to write. Why was it a fun book to write? It's a fun topic. It, it It's a topic people are interested in. It's um, It's exploring. I think it's exploring a mystery that we don't we haven't really realized is a mystery. Why do we like to get drunk? You know, there's lots of books about how we get drunk, how people have gotten drunk in different ways across the world, throughout history, what the history of certain types of drunkenness producing liquids are. You can find, you know, shelves and shelves of books about that. Um, I don't think anyone's ever explored that just the, the underlying question of why we like to get drunk in the first place. And so there's a, there's, a, it's fun to actually problematize something that people take for granted. So um, I'll bite. Why do we <laughs> get drunk? Why do we love to get drunk? Well, the, the shallow answer the, is that we like, it makes us feel good, right? Why do we like to get drunk? Cause it's great. Gr- it's fun. <laughs> um, that's not really an answer. It just pushes the question back a step, which is, why does evolution allow us to like to get drunk in other words why and you know the 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 mystery the central mystery i want to explore is there are the story we've been told about why we like to get drunk is that it's a mistake it's an evolutionary mistake so the standard if you open up a psych textbook and you read about chemical intoxicants including alcohol they're going to tell you that these are just these are substances that just happen to randomly hijack reward circuits in our brain. So we clever primates, we figured out that if we drink this liquid, it'll make us feel good because it's, we're taking advantage of uh, a reward network that evolved for other reasons. We're basically hijacking it and getting the reward for no good reason.
0: So that's the standard story. And, And that's the story that I've believed my whole life. And as a drunkard, um, you know, we're taught to feel guilty about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the, you know, in that model, our, our taste for intoxicants is like ma- our taste for masturbation. So I start the book talking about masturbation because um, that's a classic and undisputed evolutionary hijack. So evolution gives us pleasure. So pleasure is not something that evolution cares about per se. Evolution doesn't want us to be happy evolution wants us to basically pass copies of our genes to the next generation. Pleasure is one of the tools it has in its arsenal for getting us to do that. So it's something that evolution gives us for doing what it wants us to do. So in the case of an orgasm, this is the best carrot that evolution has at its disposal. It's the best thing that can happen to you as a human being. Why do we get it for that? It's because Typically, historically, statistically, over evolutionary time, orgasms were associated with reproductive sex. And reproducing your copies of your genes is the central thing evolution wants you to do. So that's why that's the best reward it can give you. Of course, humans and other species have figured out a way to game this system, right? We figured out we can get that reward in lots of other ways besides reproductive sex. And we engage in all sorts of non-reproductive sexual hijinks, but evolution lets us get away with that. Cause it doesn't, it, it, it's not interested in a perfect system. It's happy with good enough. And this system is good enough because all that masturbation, other forms of non-reproductive sex is not terribly costly. It's, um, it doesn't, it's not resource intensive. It's not, despite what you may have been told as a child, it's not harmful physiologically, right? It doesn't make you go blind. I haven't gone blind yet, professor. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you look like, and Hey, I've gotten eyesight. drunk yeah.
0: and jacked off and that doesn't seem to <laughs> it doesn't make me seem go blind to. either.
1: No, but the drunken part could. So this is the difference is that the uh, alcohol can make you go blind alcohol does harm your body. Alcohol harms your liver. It raises your cancer risk. It is really costly uh, in terms of just the amount of resources that go into producing it. And And it's been around forever. So humans have been focusing their attention on making and consuming alcohol. We've been doing that for as long as we've been doing anything in an organized fashion. One of the
0: things you say in your book, if I'm not mistaken... Is that uh, we've been gathering in groups, fermenting grains and grapes, playing music, and then getting truly hammered before we'd even figured out agriculture. Yeah. And so we've been getting drunk for as long as we've been around. Best on,
1: like best, best I can tell, consuming your work. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah. No. And that's another. That was actually a surprise when I started doing the research for the book. I had suspicions about the evolutionary mistake story, but I'd also been taught that the discovery of alcohol was a mistake. So we, we settled down, we created agriculture, and then sometime after that, whatever, we left some sourdough starter sitting too long and it fermented and someone by mistake fell into it and tasted it or just decided just to see what it tasted like and discovered beer. Hey, this this is a fun thing to drink. Um that's not doesn't appear to be the case. So if you look at the archaeological evidence, um so before
0: agriculture, we're getting drunk or figure we figured this out very very early.
1: Yeah, so 13,000 years ago, we have direct evidence of beer making. In, in what's now Israel, so in the Fertile Crescent, where where agriculture first got started. But this is way thousands of years before agriculture started. We have sites like Göbekli Tepe in present-day Turkey, where dating, people debate it, but probably it's probably ten to 12,000-year-old site. And wh- again, well before agriculture, we have hunter-gatherers coming together, building these massive temples with these huge stone stelae carved with animal shapes and and having some we don't know what kind of ceremonies they were doing there we don't really know anything about their religious views but there were also these enormous vats that held some kind of liquid and maybe it was sparkling water but i really doubt it <laughs> so we don't have direct chemical residues to prove that this this was alcoholic beverages but it probably it was probably beer and it may have even been beer uh, laced with hallucinogens but if this is the case, and, and you see the same pattern across the world that the first plants being domesticated by people, wherever you see people starting agriculture, are being domesticated for their psychoactive properties, not for their nutrition properties. So in, in South America, the ancestor to, to maize corn is this plant called teosinte, And teosinte makes terrible grain. So if you were a hunter-gatherer and you were interested in food, you would ignore this plant because it makes terrible. If you want to make tortillas, you're not going to focus on this plant. If you want to make beer, Teosinte is awesome. It makes great chicha to this day. They In South America, they make this beer-like substance called chicha out of out of maize. So it's clear that humans started paying attention to the ancestor of maize because they wanted to make beer not because they wanted to make grain products. And so, in this sense, our desire to get intoxicated literally led to civilization. We, we were motivated to start agriculture by this desire to get drunk. And so, it's not a mistake. It's actually the, the driving force that caused us to first settle down and give up hunter-gatherer lifestyles. So it's a it's been this driving force and and you know get, to compare go back to this evolutionary mistake thing, masturbation has not had that kind of effect on human beings. Right, <laughs> we didn't create civilizations so that we'd have comfortable places to masturbate, um, and yet we were driven by this desire to get intoxicated, and we've dedicated. So once we settle down and start making alcohol we put enormous resources into doing so. There's one estimate from ancient Sumer is that half of the grain production went to making beer. So you're taking, in a place where people are on the edge of starvation, even in large scale civilizations, you're taking half of your food stuff and turning it into a chemical neurotoxin, something that's gonna harm your liver, increase your cancer risk, lead to potentially to social chaos, people drink too much of it. Um, and so this is where the the danger presented by alcohol and the costs that it imposes on humans means that it can't be a mistake there there have to be uh, countervailing benefits that that pay for the costs so that's what most of the book is trying to focus on what those what those benefits might be and from an the argument i think i
0: that you're making is that something like this that's been around for 13,000 years can't be an evolution at least least. can't be an evolutionary mistake and must serve some kind of evolutionary purpose. And you make some pretty big statements about the connection between the development of societies, the development of agriculture, uh, the development of life as we know it today. You, at least in part, trace back to alcohol.
1: Yeah. So, we're motivated to settle down by this desire to get intoxicated. Once we settle down, we we've got a lot of new challenges when we're not living. Did we, do, I hate to
0: interrupt you, professor, but do you think I just want to be clear that the desire to get drunk drives the desire to settle down more than the desire to settle down and procreate and have a mate um, is the desire to settle
1: down? You don't need to settle down to have a mate. Hunter gatherers are perfectly capable of having mates. Um and hunt- frankly hunter gatherer lifestyles are certainly much more pleasant than early agricultural life. So we went going through agriculture gave us our life today. Which I think, you know, there's this kind of romantic view of hunter gatherers where oh couldn't wouldn't it be great if we could go back to that lifestyle? I think we would it would suck for us right now. We have a much better lifestyle now than than even the most um well off hunter gatherers had. But we most had to people go through can't this. give up their iPhone for twelve hours. Yeah, right. Yeah. No. Just, you know, running water, uh, medicine is all the stuff is very good but early agricultural societies were really unpleasant for most of the people in them so hunter gatherers you know whatever whatever the problems with living without technology the kind of technology we have now it was an interesting lifestyle So um, you lived in relatively egalitarian bands, usually, except in places with a lot, like up here in the Pacific Northwest, actually, there was enough, there were enough resources to have stratified societies and slavery and warfare and all the bad things that typically come with agriculture. But most hunter-gatherer groups lived in pretty egalitarian bands. They, They had diverse diets. So they, you know, they ate a variety of wild meats and fruits and vegetables. Uh, It was an interesting lifestyle. It was always farm to table eating. Yeah. It was always the fresh local.
0: It it was always what was in season.
1: Stuff in season. Right. Then you move to, let's say a village agricultural, large village or small city in the, the near East. And most people are living these monotonous daily lifestyles. They get up, They are slaving away at building monuments, or they're out in the fields tending to the crops all day. They're eating really boring diets. So they're eating really heavily grain-based diets, but without much in the way of vegetables and meats. It was not a great transition. They're living together in very crowded conditions that humans are not naturally adapted to. And so one of the things alcohol did was having motivated people to give up hunter-gathering and live in these communities it gave them some tools for coping with that. So one of the advantages of alcohol is just stress reduction and mood enhancement. So there's good evidence that um, alcohol alcohol boosts these feel-good hormones in humans and, and makes us feel more relaxed, uh, happier, boosts the serotonin. Um, so, so simple stress reduction is one of the functions of alcohol and we still use it this way today. I mean, this is what when someone comes home from work and pours himself a glass of wine. This is the stress reduction, um, transition to a new phase of the day. The work day is over. This the and you know, after work day has started. So that's one function. And there is uh, somebody who
0: enjoys my alcohol. It does sort of it, it does mark a transition. Right. So today's a great example. So I write a weekly newsletter with two partners and we'll be, we'll be finalizing this week's newsletter today Mm -hmm. and I'll probably start work on it at about three o'clock. And um, the likelihood I might not, but the likelihood I crack open a uncle Dave's IPA, which is my favorite local Santa Cruz IPA is pretty high. Mm -hmm. And of course I enjoy the beer, but it is also this, you're right, it's this psychological switch. I'm now going to get into a relaxed creative mode. I'm going to spend time. I don't care how long, if I spend an hour with it or three hours with it, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, my wife, Carrie, knows when I'm doing these kind of creative things, just leave me alone. Once,
1: once the IPAs, IPAs are out, t- it's don't, over. Go in, <laughs> don't go in the studio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's been true for
0: 13,000
1: years. Is that, is that what I'm learning here? Uh, professor? So, so you're doing, you're really mixing two functions there. So you're mixing this transition to a more relaxed mode of work maybe. Um, but the, the creative, so one of the most important functions of alcohol is this creativity enhancing function. So humans, unlike, any other species are completely dependent on creativity. We're dependent on tools and technology. The environment's constantly changing. So we have to keep changing our tool sets. We're competing with other groups that if they have better tool sets and can exploit the environment better than we can, we're in big trouble. So we have to keep innovating in that regard. The humans have a problem when it comes to it. We have a, there's a tension in our brain. Between being able to innovate and being able to focus so evolution wants us to both be creative and task focus You need both of those things, and unfortunately they 're in opposition to one another professor is this is this
0: why we say um, write drunk and edit sober is that where that comes from
1: absolutely that 's absolutely the case so the and we use um, you know, edit on coffee. So we use different psychoactive substances to strengthen different sides of this particular equation. So caffeine, the book is about chemical intoxicants. So alcohol, I also talk about cannabis and psychedelics. It's not about caffeine and it's not about nicotine, even though these are psychoactive substances. And that's because nicotine, caffeine are friends of the prefrontal cortex, so the big the big villain in my story is the prefrontal cortex. This is the part of your brain that is the last to develop. It doesn't mature until you're well into your 20s. So it's really a late maturing part and that's an interesting feature of humans that it doesn't it doesn't fully develop until quite late. Is that why young people are so fucking stupid? <laughs> it's why they're so stupid. It's why it's why four-year-olds can't tie their shoes or focus on getting out the door. It's why I still, so my daughter's 14. The reason I was late to the podcast today is cause you know, she forgets her water bottle or we walk out the door and she hasn't, you know, she didn't bring her volleyball shoes. So we have to go back and get those. It, it's a, it's a slightly less annoying uh, less time-consuming version of what it was like when she was four or five, trying to get her off to daycare. Um, there's, she's scattered, right? Kids are scattered, and this remains the case until our twenties, because their PFC, prefrontal cortex, is not fully developed, and this is this is the center of what cognitive scientists would call executive function or cognitive control. So the PFC is what allows you to focus on something uh, stay on task, resist distractions, resist temptations. It's what allows you to delay gratification, suppress emotions that might not be helpful. It's the key to kind of being in charge and being focused and in control. And that's crucial. We need that. Um, We need to be able to get to school on time and, um, and edit something, edit a document that's really boring, right? We need to be able to persevere and not get distracted and really focus. That's what the PFC is good for. The problem is when the PFC is like a laser focus and sometimes for creativity tasks, like if you want to write something in your newsletter, that's unexpected or funny and not just kind of plotting through, uh, information, which is always the case for our newsletter. Right? So you want it, you don't want it to be just A, B, C, D. You want to, you want to go off in new directions. The PFC is your enemy. Because the PFC doesn't want to let you do that. It doesn't want to let different parts of your brain talk to each other um, in a disorganized way. Hmm. So I I hate to interrupt you, but, and I know you're not a doctor, Uh a
0: medical doctor, but I I think you just explained. So uh, I have four or five today. We lovingly call them learning differences, Uh dyscalculia and dyslexia and executive function and eighty. I put them all together and call it dysfocculia.
1: Okay. Dysfocculia. Yeah. But
0: does ADHD
1: and executive function live in the PFC? That's a good question. I don't know much about that, but I suspect that's gotta be the case. Cause I think with um, ADHD, one of the, one of the things they give you to help with that is speed, right? Right. Basically, essentially meth um, and meth is like uh, cocaine and caffeine and nicotine. It it helps your executive function. It helps you focus um, yeah. so yeah that makes sense And know
0: so for somebody who is overweight so to speak and uh, more highly creative like i i i don't know where my glasses are i don't know where my fucking mm-hmm. keys are I, I mean it's it's a non-stop it's like it's irritating to me i can't even believe what it's like to live with me but like that is <laughs> yeah. and that will never get fixed i'm fucking 53
1: years old and i can't find my keys yeah. No, that's, you've got a, probably a problem with your PFC <laughs> and that's, but it works for you, right? So this is what you're going to be better at. So, so people, there's, um, one of the things I review in the book is studies with people who have PFC damage. So people who are grown-ups but they don't have fully functioning PFCs. They're not as good at impulse control. They're not a, as good at focusing on tasks. They're better at creative tasks. So if you can relax the PFC, or if you have a damaged PFC, you're better, you can't find your glasses, but you're better at seeing connections between things that other people don't see, right? You're better at making creative breakthroughs. It's so funny you say that because I'll be like,
0: Oh, I I live in this perpetual frustration, right? Can't find anything. Can't any of that stuff. However, when I crack that beer Mm -hmm. and I dive in for two hours and I get my, I, I I love to listen to music. Mm-hmm. I will literally say to, you know, in this case, my wife, Carrie, baby, I fucking love hanging out in my brain. Like it's just <laughs> yeah. pure joy for me to hang out in pure creativity and it's pure pain and suffering to try to figure out where the fucking keys are.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you, so you get that, you know, you get some degree of that for free because you seem to have a pfc that may be structured differently than most adults i've got a pretty well functioning pfc so if i want to get into that creative state where things come to me and i make connections what am i going to do i'm not going to i could use a transcranial magnet i could because there's so i look at experimental evidence that if you zap the pfc take it offline Temporarily, you can be more creative people to better at creativity tasks. I don't happen to have a transcranial magnet in my apartment and they're expensive and kind of bulky to carry around with you. So what you need, so basically evolution has this problem. Um, it wants us to have a fully functioning PFC. There are downsides to that. What I argue in the book is one s- cultural solution to this problem is chemical intoxicants so before we had transcranial magnets you could take the pfc offline with some beer a nice ipa um so this is, this is one of the functions of alcohol and other intoxicants. It's temporarily, re- either, it's temporarily making me like you. <laughs> it's temporarily messing up my PFC so that I can get the benefits of that kind of thinking. Um, or if you want to put it this way, it's like taking you back to having a childlike mind. You're, you're going back to having the kind of flexi- cognitive flexibility and creativity that you had as a child. But the nice thing is that you're still an adult. And so, you know, what's interesting. So this is, um, I I look at the work of uh, Alison Gopnik, who's a developmental psychologist at Berkeley. And she's done great work showing that um, she has these great creativity tasks that four-year-olds and five-year-olds are awesome at. And as you age, you get dramatically worse at these tasks. So the creativity, direct um, linear descent in creativity. And I lay on top of that, Um, a graph showing the maturation of the prefrontal cortex and it matches. I mean, this is basically tracking the development of the prefrontal cortex. Um, So she's pointing out that kids have this creativity that adults lack. And at one point she says, so kids are like the R and D department of the human species and adults are marketing and um, implementation. But the problem with that analogy is kids don't, there kids don't have many patents to their name, Right. Kids are creative, but they're useless. <laughs> you know, they use their creativity for <laughs> stupid shit, right? Um, and it's cute. Like it's, you know, they build these forts and they do, but it's not gonna solve, you know, it's not gonna help us deal with a delta variant or climate change or um uh, so the I think what's going on really with this is that um adults have figured out a way to temporarily make themselves like children for a couple hours. But they still, because they're adults, they actually know what the interesting questions are. And so when they have these creative insights, they're not you know, inventing a new version of a Lego tower. They're figuring out how to start their book um, or they're figuring out how to. So I had this experience where um, it's a good example of how my PFC is a problem. I went through 10 versions of the book proposal for this book. And my agent kept sending it back to me and saying, nope, it's not not good yet. And she was right. She's good. She was, it didn't, it didn't pop. I had all the content there. I had a really good argument. I had all the scientific evidence and I was walking people. It's, you know, why do people like to get drunk? A, well, it's puzzling because B. And so I'd walk people through the argument, A, B, C, D. And It was boring. Like it was not the kind of thing that would draw you in and we needed some pop and she was right. And, and I realized, Oh, you know what? I haven't taken my own advice. I actually haven't written any of this while drunk and I was on a business trip. She had sent me, emailed me and I was going to be meeting with colleagues for dinner, but I had a couple hours before dinner. And so I took my laptop down to the hotel bar and I ordered a Negroni. And by the end of Negroni number one, and the first sip of Negroni number two, so about 0.08 blood alcohol content, that's, I'm arguing the book, that seems to be the sweet spot for a lot of the effects of alcohol. I really felt like some, someone just started dictating to me the first two pages of the book. So it became the beginning of the proposal. It's now the beginning of the book. Um, people like to masturbate. They also like to get drunk and eat Twinkies, you know, that those lines, people love those lines because they hit you, they draw you in. I don't feel like I wrote them. I feel like some part of my brain dictated them to me when I got into a sufficiently relaxed state. And so this is what alcohol does for you. So I had all my PSC did a good job of gathering all the scientific data and coming up with a coherent argument that you need the PSC to do that. But in order to write something that would draw people in and make it compelling, I needed this other type of thinking. And and, and alcohol is a tool for giving you access to that kind of thinking.
0: And, and you argue that that tool has been used for thousands of years. And of course, it's hard to know, but but that our desire for that tool is so great that in times where we're starving to death, as a culture, half of what we're focused on is, is, is agriculture that will help us get drunk and feel better. Yeah. Yeah. And you further argue, you tell me if I'm uh, misinterpreting that we wouldn't have the scientific breakthroughs, we wouldn't have the societal breakthroughs. We wouldn't live in the cities that we live in, uh, et cetera. It's that we wouldn't have the artistic and creative uh, endeavors. Uh, We wouldn't have built the bridges and the airplanes and, and, and the smartphones that we built, without the ability to get drunk that's that's
1: essentially what i'm arguing yes so we don't we can't run the tape again and see what it would be like without chemical intoxicants what we can do is just look at so there's massive amounts of anecdotal evidence um this regard there's some experimental evidence there's definitely experiment lot loads of experimental evidence that if you can down impair the pfc you're better at creativity tasks the one study that actually used alcohol to do this found that it peaked at around 0.08. So, about two drinks in is about when your, your creativity peaks. There's a, I also look at this really interesting study that is taking advantage of a natural experiment. So, this economist looked at um, prohibition the imposition of prohibition in the U.S. And we tend to think of that as something that happened all at once at the federal level, but it actually was imposed piecemeal at the county level over a long period of time. And so he took advantage of that where he looked at county-level data, and he was looking at counties that used to be wet, and then prohibition gets imposed on them. And he's looking at patent applications as a proxy of creativity and innovation. And what you see is patent applications drop by 15% after prohibition gets imposed and they stay low. And then about three years later, they start to climb back to previous levels. And he thinks what's happening is uh, the shutting down. People still drank after prohibition was imposed, but they had to drink at home to drink bootleg or stocked up liquor. He thinks what's happening when it rebounds is the creation of speakeasies. So suddenly we invent a new way. So so he's arguing that um, the key thing to innovation seems to be not just you individually becoming more creative by down-regulating your mind, but doing it in the company of other people. And, and that's when... And so I talk about just anecdotal evidence that... Um, breakthroughs that I've had professionally have tended to come from pub sessions where you sit down with people and you, so you're getting more creative individually. You're also getting disinhibited. So you're less self-conscious. Uh, you have an, I have an idea that maybe I would have thought one beer ago was stupid but now two beers in i think it sounds interesting enough to share with you and it turns out it is interesting and you're like oh yeah that connects to something that i knew about so you wouldn't you wouldn't have the kind of free and open communications that you have um when you're in a brainstorming session without without alcohol doing this down regulating function and and i talk about the fact that you know so another bit of evidence is just that organizations who create have a role for alcohol in this regard seem to be quite successful. So I talk about Google. I gave a talk about this um, creativity and spontaneity stuff a few many years ago at a Google campus. And the first thing they did after my talk was take me on a tour of the, the campus. And they said, we know where we're going first. And they took me to their whiskey room. And this is this room they go to where when they run into a, a barrier, a coding problem, instead of sitting at their computers, drinking more coffee and strengthening their PFCs even more, they stop and they go to the whiskey room. They pour themselves a glass of whiskey. They sit around in beanbag chairs and shoot the shit. And they say that often this breaks them through that log jam. They actually, someone will be like, Hey, why didn't we think of doing this? And they have a new idea and they move forward. So successful organizations seem to have a structural way of incorporating that particular type of cognition, creative cognition you get with alcohol into their institutions. And, and I think that's, that's revealing. Well, and today it's
0: controversial because we live in a woke world. um, And you know, you had to do the obligatory, I know alcohol is bad and don't be an alcoholic and all that shit at the front Mm -hmm. end, which I understand. And I'll more than likely have to do the same thing at the front end of this. Yeah. intro to this episode this is and look i have friends who are in AA and look i get that part of it yeah but in in today's world it is controversial for a university professor of a real university to come out and say hey listen in this example of google at work it's good to have a couple of uh, scotches with the people that you're working with because maybe we're going to have a breakthrough in creativity and innovation that's that's yeah In today's world,
1: that's not a thing
0: that the woke side of the the equation
1: wants to hear. Yeah. Yeah. My daughter, 14-year-old daughter, when I went on, I did an interview early on in promotion for the book on Joe Rogan show. And she she had one bit of advice for me. She was like, Daddy, just don't get canceled. (laughs) She knew that, you know, especially we started drinking bourbon on that show in minute number three. So uh, it could have gone sideways. And did you get drunk with him? I did no we started started pouring me bourbon about two minutes in, and it was a three hour interview, so yeah, yeah, we got quite quite uh lubricated in that show.
0: did you think it was a good podcast? I'm not a rogan fan, so I I missed it, but you thought it was a good podcast,
1: Yeah, I think it went really well, and I think it went much better than it would have had we not down regulated ourselves a little bit, also because of the trust issue, so there's two things alcohol's doing for us crucially besides the stress reduction, um, there's the creativity function. There's also the, the bonding function. So it's, it's a way that potentially hostile or at least sus- mutually suspicious individuals have of essentially chemically mentally disarming themselves. So the PFC is the, the center of focus staying focused on task. It's also the center of self-interest, rational self-interest, calculation, lying. You really need a fully intact PFC to lie successfully because lying is really hard. You've got to keep an, your working memory. You've got to keep track of both what reality is and what you said reality was. You have to suppress, maybe suppress emotions that would um, are counter to the story you're telling. It's really hard to lie and you need the PFC to do it. So if you want to get individuals who might be suspicious of one another to relax and be honest and tell the truth and move past their, their differences, alcohol is a great substance. And this is why historically and cross culturally throughout time, there's been no treaty negotiation. Um, no contracts were signed uh, without alcohol. Uh, people sit down and they, they downregulate their pre. It's like um, when you shake hands to show you're not carrying a weapon. You sit down, you do a couple shots, or you have some beers. You're taking your prefrontal cortex out and putting it on the table, um, and saying I'm cognitively disarmed. And so I I look at evidence that um, being a little bit drunk makes it harder to lie. It also, which that makes a lot of sense. What makes a little less sense, but is interesting, is that it makes it easier to detect lying. We're actually better at telling when someone's telling a lie if we're a little drunk. And that seems to be because we're, we don't actually consciously, we're not consciously good at knowing what the cues are in lying. We think we do. We're like, oh, let's look and see if they're looking sideways or something. We saw something on a CSI or detective show that we're using. Um, but in fact, lie detection involves taking in lots of different bits of data and crunching them in a creative way. And for the same re- reason we're creative when we're a little bit drunk, we seem to be better at detecting lies. We also feel better. So alcohol's increasing serotonin, um, endorphins. And so we just, we feel better about ourselves. We feel better about the people we're with. We like them more. So there's, in again, I look at good experimental evidence that that alcohol helps with bonding. It helps people get past suspicion and bond with one another. So there are all these great functions of alcohol. It's, it is controversial to therefore argue, well, we need to keep them. One of the reasons I wrote this book is because you're right that, um, you could call it a woke age. I think the problem is more this kind of neo-puritanism. Um, we live in this kind of puritanical age where we're really suspicious about anything that gives pleasure. And anything that that seems not associated with wholesome, just you know doing yoga and being a vegetarian and you know embracing everyone um so it's kind of I think alcohol has this kind of association with madman like culture and you know um and and that's all true actually so the the there I walk through this is not just ass covering i I sincerely believe that the only way to successfully incorporate alcohol into our lives is to fix some of the problems with the way we've historically used it. So I was talking about, you know, I talked at one point about these academic creative breakthroughs that happen with alcohol. And I was doing a podcast interview with someone in, um, he said, "Oh yeah, you know, I have I've always had the best conversations with my professors, you know, at the conference hotel bar after a couple beers or you know, I I found out about postdoc opportunities that way and you know, there's so, and I and I do believe there's something really special. People go to conferences not to listen to talks, but for the socializing that happens. And it's socializing that happens with alcohol. Um and and there's a good reason for that. But, you know, I said <laughs> I think I don't even know if we're on the air at this point. I was like, um, you know, so tell me more about that. He was like, yeah, you know, it was like 10 PM, you know, the sessions were over at the hotel bar. We were doing shots and he's a dude. And I was like, and what were the gender of these? And they were like, yeah, it was his, his other dudes. And I said, were there any women around? And he said, well, yeah, there were a couple female grad students there, but they left, you know, before the drinking got serious. And I was like, yeah, of course did. <laughs> they did. Because if you're a woman, you don't want to be around a bunch of dudes at 10 p.m. at the hotel bar who are drinking heavily. Um, and so there's got to be a way that we can get the benefits of that. We get the benefits, the genuine benefits of down downregulated bonding and creativity while leveling the playing field a little bit more. Um, making it not just a kind of old boys network, reinforcing type of activity, making it accessible to people who don't drink, right? There's a lot of reasons people don't drink. They could be recovering alcoholics. They could be Muslim. Most could, of which are not great reasons. <laughs> I don't know about that. If you're recovering, no, al- I'm, I'm, you, being, I'm yeah, being facetious. Yeah, yeah. There's got, to, I mean, there are people who don't drink for really good reasons. And it's unfair if they're getting frozen out of this networking and bonding because they don't want to do shots at 10 p.m. at night. So, that, yes. And I, I know people who, I'm
0: sure you know people like this as well, who they drink just a little. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they might have two beers a month or they might have. They might share a glass of wine with their spouse at a special occasion dinner. So they they will enjoy some alcohol from time to time, but they don't, you know, for me, two glasses of wine with dinner is not
1: drinking. Right. Right. Yeah. No, people clearly have different tolerances for alcohol. They have different needs for alcohol. Um, There's a and culture matters. So um, another thing I talk about is, is the real danger of alcoholism? So this is, again, one of the puzzles of why evolution has allowed us to keep this taste for alcohol is it's is really puzzling when you think about the fact that probably about 15% of the human population has a genetic predisposition to alcoholism. And if you have that predisposition, it's really difficult for you to use alcohol safely. You said 15% and 15%. And yet a- actual, if you look around the globe right now, actual alcoholism rates vary quite a bit. So they're quite high in places like Russia, in the U.S., um, Northern Europe, and Australia, New Zealand. They're quite low in places like Italy or Spain. And this is interesting because, in fact, the per capita consumption of alcohol is not low in Italy and Spain. And Italy is actually quite high, but alcoholism rates are low. And how
0: is alcoholism um, defined as
1: as opposed to just drinking alcohol, usually um, there's a there's a scale where you get rated on your degree of alcohol use disorder um, AUD. So alcoholism medically is is called alcohol use disorder AUD, and there's a diagnostic scale. So you administer basically give someone a questionnaire, and if you score, um, I think there's ten key questions, and if you sc- answer yes to two or three of them you have mild alcohol use disorder and if you score you know more than that you start to get into severe alcohol so the questions like do you ever drink more than you would like to do you ever um, wake up the next day unable to work at your normal capacity because of drinking you know all the way to you know do you spend the entire day drinking and you can't hold a job um so that's how it's defined um and uh there's pretty high levels of that sort of misuse in places that don't have healthy drinking cultures. And so one of the things I look at is how, um, what anthropologists call Southern drinking cultures, they're talking about Southern Europe, basically give you a cultural buffer against alcoholism. So in Southern cultures, you drink, you only drink in the context of meals. You only drink at the meal table. You're drinking primarily beer and wine. Kids get introduced to drinking at a quite early age. They get taught that it's just part of mealtime. So they get a little bit of wine, watered down. Um, then they start drinking, you know, a little bit more as they get older. Outright drunkenness is frowned upon. So public drunkenness is considered kind of embarrassing or not adult-like. When you have all these features, you tend to be able to drink responsibly. So if people drink at the dinner table. When dinner's done, you leave the table, the drinking is done as opposed to Northern drinking cultures where you drink primarily distilled spirits, so you drink a lot of vodka or gin or whatever, uh, you drink to get drunk. So you are drinking sometimes just for drinking. There's no meal involved. Uh, it's taboo. So children aren't allowed to drink. It's something only adults do. And there's a kind of sense of that it's dangerous or bad or grown up and you shouldn't be doing it, which makes it of course, more appealing to young people. Um, and it public drunkenness is not only tolerated but actually sometimes celebrated as a sign of manhood and you have cultures like that people drink to excess and you know as i my ex-wife's half italian we have a lot of relatives in italy We spent a lot of time there uh, spent a sabbatical in rome if you see someone walking around the streets of rome really visibly drunk they're an American tourist or German, <laughs> or they're not Italian. Um, and, and kids grow up with, a, I think, a healthier attitude towards alcohol. Um, so there, there are ways in which you can drink that are more or less dangerous. And I think we can learn something from cultures that, that use alcohol responsibly. And do you have an opinion, professor, on the legal drinking age in the United States being 21? That seems crazy high to me, um, I think for distilled so one of the other arguments I make in the book is that distilled liquors are unusually dangerous. They're relatively recent. This was another surprise I had in the research for the book. I tend I think most people think and I thought that we've kind of always had vodka and gin and things like that. We haven't. Um they were really you only had widespread access to distilled liquors in Europe in the, not until the 16 or 1700s which it sounds like a long time ago, but I'm telling a story that goes back 10 million years to a primate ancestors who adapted to eating fruit that had fermented. Um, that's basically yesterday in evolutionary terms. And so distilled liquors are really recent invention and they're super dangerous. Like it's just most of our history, we've been drinking beers primarily and pretty weak beers, like the stuff that people have historically drunk, what they were drinking at Copacetepe, the chichas that people drink, they're typically clocking in at about 2 or 3% ABV. Um, and so, these are things you could drink all day and really never get much beyond 0.08. Um, with, you like hop beers. So, um, hops are a, a new invention that helped beer last longer. Rel, hops are relatively recent development, um, as are the yeast that that craft brewers use to get these kind of crazy, strong IPAs now. So with modern yeast, you can get IPAs up to whatever, I don't know, 9% or something, something crazy. Yeah. And double
0: IPAs have become really popular. Yeah.
1: And what, what do those get up to? Uh,
0: I think they're in the early teens, alcohol right. content, a double IPA.
1: That's really high. Um, but that's unusual. That's really only recently that we've had that. So, what we're really adapted to, and I think what we've, um, the way in which we've historically incorporated alcohol is in the form of these weak, relatively weak beers and wines. If you have access to distilled liquors that are coming in at you know, 70, 80, 90% ABV, you can blow right through 0.08 BAC into really dangerous, like passing out. Dying, you know, stopping breathing really In quickly. Like four drinks, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I think there should be we need to treat, even though it's still just ethanol, we need to treat distilled liquors as a different drug. And there are jurisdictions that do this, right? They treat there's a different drinking age for distilled liquors. So I think twenty-one might be a fair drinking age for distilled liquors. Um, but I think that uh for drinking wine and beer, it should be younger. And I think that I think this is the case in europe um and I think it's certainly the case in Italy. um you know kids should be able to have a beer or wine at the dinner table with their parents when they're out at a restaurant pretty early, you know, like sixteen, even fifteen seems fine to me um it It should be like driving you know your driving permit you when you first get your driving permit, it has to be during the daytime with an adult in the passenger seat same thing with drinking. Um you should, you know, you should be able to fig- learn how to incorporate alcohol into a nice end of the day meal with your family and friends in a way that's responsible at an earlier age. But when you make the drinking age 21 and 17, 18, 19, 20-year-olds are having to go out and drink in the woods because it's not legal doesn't seem to me to encourage healthy drinking practices. So
0: it's like uh, you mentioned it be, be, being an in incentive. The greatest thing ever for the sale of records was that warning on the side of the record that says, this is an evil, bad yeah, record right. with horrible <laughs> language in it, right? Like, oh, yeah. excellent. That's the record yeah. I want.
1: Yeah. And I have yeah. thought
0: this for a long time, Professor. I grew up in Montreal, Canada. Okay. And the legal drinking age, I don't know what it is now, but when I grew up, it was 18 yeah, and uh, as I'm apt to say, it, and 18 was merely a suggestion. Yeah, right. You know, I was, yeah. yeah, I was in bands, playing in bars at 14. Yeah, and a if, maybe a young looking 14 year old, not so much, but an average to maybe slightly more look mature looking 14, certainly 15 year old, were we to go, you know, so your kids' age kind of thing. Yeah, at least my experience in Montreal, I think it's still true today. If we all sat down for lunch. Yeah. Um, they would probably be given a wine glass. They yeah. certainly wouldn't be carded if, if you said, oh, you know, my son or daughter would love a splash of that nice whatever we're having.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, Montreal, so Quebec is this, you know, weird outpost of southern drinking culture in North America. So it's the, you know, the French drinking culture is more southern European. And so you have this more relaxed attitude towards towards everything. I mean, so I think part of the problem one of the things I argue in the book is that we don't think intelligently about alcohol because of this weird neo puritanism where alcohol is really bad, we have these very kind of um black and white views of it and in the same way that we do have of sex and um so I think that you know cappecois culture is more European and what does that mean? It means more relaxed attitudes about alcohol, more relaxed attitudes about sex, um, you know, kind of willingness to talk about things in a more frank manner. And I think I think we need more of that. So we um you know I'm a, my PhD is in religious studies. And so, you know, we study academically, we study these rituals that people have, you know, whatever they were doing at Quebec Lake Tepe, whatever people do when they get together um, across the globe and historically and rituals. And when we talk about those things, we tend to focus on dancing and singing and the moving in synchrony. Maybe we'll talk about scarification and other types of practices. There's this odd silence on the fact that most of the people doing this stuff are wasted when they're doing it, right? They're either really drunk or they're they've taken psychedelics. Um, we never talk about the, the chemical substances people are using, so it's this weird blind spot in scholarship as well. We don't when we're looking at human sociality and we're talking about religion and sociality, for instance. Um, there's a squeamishness about mentioning chemical intoxicants that's really weird. Um, there's this um, there's this famous religious studies, uh, Merce Aliada is one of the the kind of founders of re- modern religious studies. He was at the University of Chicago and he did this big famous study on shamanism across the world and historically. And he's at one point he mentions kind of grudgingly that. Sure. Some, in some modern debased context, shamans will take psychedelics. They'll take chemical intoxicants to get into a mystical state, but this is a debased form of mysticism. And it's like, based on what, <laughs> you know, there's, it's debased is what everyone's been doing across the world for all of history. So it's this weird kind of, um, I can't explain it other than a kind of Puritanism. It's kind of discomfort with talking about things like this. Um, well, and in that sense, and I mean, this is a huge compliment.
0: I remember when I first heard about Kinsey and his work on sex and all the research and all that stuff. And my memory of it anyway, was he sort of ha- had a similar aha, which was he said, listen, this is the thing that we, uh, most of us do. Uh, without it, we wouldn't be here. For a lot of us, it's a ton of fun, et cetera, et cetera. It's an important thing. Yeah. And there's no scientific research into it this is insane yeah Yeah. and so you're i feel like you're saying the same thing which is hey listen this is an important part of human society it's central to our evolution and yet all we've been told is it's bad and
1: wrong and and you shouldn't do it and we shouldn't talk about it and we shouldn't study it and or we shouldn't study it except in the context of kind of medical pathology so the the literature on alcohol is almost entirely focused on the problem of alcoholism, studying it as a medical problem. There's very, very little psychological research on, health, on how healthy non-alcoholic people use alcohol in their daily lives. It's really weird. Um, and I think it's, it's, again, this kind of puritanism. And it means that practically, as a psychologist, you're not going to study alcohol or other chemical intoxicants because you're going to have a lot of trouble getting funding and you're going to have a lot of trouble getting uh, permission. Uh, so you can't do a study without you know, IRB. Um, you need to get uh, clearance from the Human Subjects Board to do the experiment. And it's very hard to get um, human subjects approval for anything involving intoxicants. Um, I ran into this. We were going to try to do the study of wine and taste years and years ago with this colleague at Santa Barbara. Um, and we finally just, the, the requirements of the the ethics board were so onerous that we finally were just like, forget it. <laughs> we'll try this later. Maybe we'll do it with tea or something some other time, but we gave up because studying alcohol was so difficult. Um, and hopefully that'll change because I think that when we look at alcohol only through the lens of pathology, we don't understand it properly. Um, and that's unfortunately the way we look at it. We look at it in purely medicalized terms. And if you're looking at it from pure, purely medicalized terms, we shouldn't drink. There are no, like this whole cholesterol stuff, fine. You know, it may help, wine may help with cholesterol. The net physiological impact of alcohol is negative. There's no benefit to it and so you know i i I talk about this lancet uh huge meta study from 2016 that concluded that this the safe amount of alcohol to drink is zero and that's true if you're only looking at it from a medical perspective but if you look at it from this broader perspective of how alcohol has played this crucial role in human creativity and um, socializing and bonding and moving past the constraints of small-scale societies how it helps us, it's used today as a tool by people to uh, reduce stress, to enhance intimacy. Uh, it's, you gotta weigh all those benefits against the medical costs. And and the barrier to doing so has been this this weird Puritan discomfort with talking about the positive sides of alcohol and not just its costs.
0: I'm curious uh, what's happened in your life and in your career since you've come out, um, with your book and you're the champion of getting drunk.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's hard to say because, you know, COVID makes everything so weird, right? The book came out during the pandemic. Um, there wasn't the normal kind of book. I didn't do a normal book tour. You know, I just did these kind of, uh, one-off podcasts. It's actually interesting. Um, it's revealing that I just don't know what my colleagues think about the book because it shows you actually how important in-person socializing is. So if this book, if it had been a normal year, this book would have come out and I'd be going to conferences and bumping into people and chatting with people. And then I'd get some sense of how uh, the book was landing with my colleagues and what they thought about it. Instead, we're all still trapped in our silos at home and we don't really know what's going on in terms of how people are reacting to things. So I haven't had, um, kind of push back. I haven't had the kind of pushback that I've expected on, for instance, on Twitter, but maybe it's just because people haven't been paying attention. (laughs) If they they were, they would would become upset about it. Um, I do think I, um, you're right that I'm making a controversial argument, but I also don't think that I'm blind to the dangers of alcohol and the ways in which we need to level the playing field for non-drinkers. And those caveats are not like bullshit things that my editor made me put in. They're, they're things I really, I sincerely worry about. Um, um, I, it's, we want to have, we want to use alcohol responsibly and equitably while not being a bunch of neo-ascetic Puritans about it. And, and that's the trick. Yes. And then of course the, the, at the end of the book, I'm also, so I, pleasure, can't be part of the story. Because if you're telling an evolutionary story, because again, evolution doesn't care about whether we're happy or not, or whether we experience pleasure or not, it wants us to to pass on copies of our genes.
0: Is there no, sorry to interrupt you, Professor, but is there no connection between how happy we are and how much we procreate Evolution from an evolutionary perspective?
1: That would be a function. So if it's the case that if we're, yeah, so one functional effect is that it makes us feel more amorous, it increases sex drive. Um, It reduces inhibitions that may be beneficial from a gene's perspective. But the
0: pleasure I'd love to know, maybe, you know, uh, or maybe Kinsey, the Kinsey Institute knows what percentage of couples uh, who are in a long term relationship uh, was alcohol involved with the first time that they got naked together. Uh, uh, That would be an interesting stat. uh, Is there any is there anything
1: about that that we know? There is, some, there is some work on alcohol and sexual intimacy, but again, in kind of the pattern you would expect, it's almost all focused on the role of alcohol and sexual assault um, and sexual violence, which where alcohol is you know a, a factor, and it's one of the really bad effects of alcohol, especially excessive alcohol use. Um, what you're not really allowed to talk about and what, what I do talk about a bit in the book is that responsible adults in loving long-term relationships have been using alcohol (laughs) this way all the time. Um, and there's a really good reason why on a first date you tend to do something if, if you're serious about it. So if you go on a first date with someone and it's coffee, you know, that, you know, it's not, it's not good yet. (laughs) Not that into it yet. Um, if you're going to go have dinner and a couple glasses of wine, it means that someone is really interested in you and would like to progress to the next level. And alcohol is a way that people reduce nervousness. They reduce, they reduce inhibitions in a way that is helpful for intimacy. Um, so it is a, it's always been a tool that people have used in a responsible way to, um, relax. And even if it's, you know, long-term couples who just need to get out of their work mindset and get into a, I'm going to leave the office behind and focus on you mindset, um, a glass or two of wine helps with that. But it's really hard to talk about that without then people saying, Oh, but what about sexual assaults on campus? And, you know, what about, you know, all these terrible things that happen when people drink too much, um, so you need to keep those two things separate, and you need to recognize the, how really disinhibiting yourself can be dangerous, especially when you're talking about a bunch of kids, college kids, who already don't have fully developed prefrontal cortices, and they're drinking distilled liquors out of plastic, opaque plastic cups. They can't even see how much they have in their cups. There are no parents around. They've been thrown into an evolutionarily bizarre situation where they're living by themselves. It's alcohol on campuses is if you wanted to des- design an unhealthy drinking culture, like if you you had Italy as one example, and then you were like, what's the the most dysfunctional drinking culture we could come up with? It would be frat drinking culture, right? Um, it's, it combines all of the worst things about alcohol and gives them to people in the most dangerous way possible when they're actually at a point in their lives when they're most vulnerable to these dangers. So, well, and
0: because we've made the legal drinking age 21, and to your point, they haven't been having a little splash here and there from the time they were 15. Yeah. When you don't make a big deal out of it, it's not a big deal. So if, if a person like that who enjoyed, enjoyed a glass of wine or a beer with their parents a couple times a week, whatever it is from the time they were 15, 16, 17, whatever it is, you get to, you get to college and you're 18, 19 and you're like, well, yeah, I'd like to have a glass of wine at dinner, but maybe I'll get drunk with my friends. But this idea of all this bullshit where I take a hose and somebody pours vodka in it and and a funnel and, you know, all that sort of stuff. You're like, well, this is insane. And because I'm not in a rebelling stage, because this has not been a big deal since I was 15 years old, you guys are nuts. Like, I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. I got thrown out of high school for being stupid. But it seems crazy to me that, to your point, we create this environment when we've held it all back and made it illegal till they're 21.
1: Yeah, I think it's just a recipe for disaster. And I'm hoping that... So, my daughter has grown up in a Southern drinking culture. So, she sp- spent lots of time in Italy um, and at home. You know, I give her a little bit of wine with dinner. Um, she's actually developed quite a good palate. She can have a sip of a Chardonnay and, and, you know, taste the apricot and lemon. She's actually... she's she doesn't, she doesn't always have the vocabulary to describe the stuff she's tasting, but she's, she's actually got quite a good palate. And she has a sip or two. And that's it. But she's learned that you know alcohol is just something you do. And if you know having a drink, and she wants to try a sip of it, she's curious about what things taste like. It's totally normal for her to have a little bit. And so I'm hoping that having been brought up in a more southern drinking culture, when she goes off to university and you know is confronted with these kind of crazy frat culture drinking practices, she'll look at them and, like you said, be like, "Yeah, (laughs) it doesn't really make sense to me." So. We'll see.
0: Well, and the other one is being drunk in a group is a very dangerous thing, right? Like if I'm if I'm going to get drunk, and I do, yeah, I like to do it in a controlled environment in my home or somebody who's home that I know. Yeah. And uh, with a group of people that I know. Yeah. Right. So my most regular time when I get drunk in my life is uh, I love the fights. Okay. And if there's a great boxing match or a great UFC fight on me and a bunch of buddies will get together and we'll drink beer and we'll drink scotch and we'll have man time and, and watch the fights and, and get rambunctious. And, but I'm, I'm not a, I, this is nothing I want to talk to you about, about sort of the violent drunk. I'm I'm not that I'm a, I love you, man. Drunk. Yeah, right? yeah, so yeah, we, we get together yeah. and watch the fights <laughs> yeah. and get hyped up, but we don't want to beat each other. We end up hugging each other. Yeah. Um, right. But that's very different than what you're describing, which is I'm at a frat party. There's a whole bunch of people that I know there. Maybe there's a hundred people in this fucking house. I'm hammered. I don't know what's going on. My awareness is lowered. Uh, you know, my, my, the likelihood I become a victim of something increases materially.
1: Yeah. No, they're, they're a predator. You're making yourself vulnerable to people who are predatory and will take advantage of your cognitive state. So that's, what's really dangerous. And it's especially, of course, the problem if you're a woman. So, um, you know, my ex-wife and I are trying to get our daughter to see that, you know, drinking is normal, but be aware of how you make yourself by taking your PFC out, you're making yourself vulnerable. And if you're doing that around friends who you trust and who love you and will take care of you, that's great. Um, If you're doing it in an environment where there's strangers around who you don't know, it's stupid. It would be like not having your sword and, you know, among people who are armed and dangerous and want to hurt you. Um, So yeah, you do it in a safe context. Um, You do it in a context where you know the people you're, you're dealing with. That's when you, that's the only time you should really seriously impair your PFC. Um, it's because it makes you incredibly vulnerable, and and so this is you know humans have evolved to be able to do that selectively when they want to. So sometimes there are there are moments when near strangers will will do that kind of severe regulation as a kind of signal to the other person that. I'm willing to trust you and make myself vulnerable in your presence. So, um, I talk about this Navy SEAL commander who, you know, he's got all these trainees who don't necessarily know each other that well. They go through this really brutal um, uh, process of training, and at the end of it, he takes traditionally takes them out to a bar and gets them really wasted on tequila. What's going on there? It's a kind of it's it's like a it, you know, cutting yourself and, you know, tattooing yourself in a traditional culture, it's is it's a sign that I'm gonna make myself vulnerable to you. I'm gonna experience pain because we all none of us are under the illusion that we're gonna feel good the next morning after we do this. Um, but I'm willing to do it in order to make a costly display that I believe in this group and I trust you other people. So there are, you know, kind of edge situations. Alcohol in that regard functions in is a kind of hazing or bonding ritual that helps people solidify social relations. Um but again, this is done in an environment where you know these people, you're gonna have to cooperate with them later on. It's not done at a house party where, you know, random strangers you don't know are wandering in and out. So um it's all you yeah, know somebody
0: who's been drunk in public more than once in his life. Um yeah.
1: It's not fun.
0: It's not wise. There's nothing smart about being drunk in public. N- yeah. Not not a nothing.
1: Yeah. So, so the upshot of the book is, you know, I feel like when we talk about alcohol, when we make public policy about alcohol, when we decide if it's okay to have alcohol at office parties or, you know, for people to go to the bar at conferences... Or for stu- grad students to go to the pub with their professor after a seminar. We've been flying blind when we've been making these decisions, anthropologically, scientifically, psychologically, because the role, the positive role of chemical intoxicants in human life has been a blind spot. And we need to correct that. The only way we're going to be able to think intelligently about how to use chemical intoxicants in our personal lives and in our organizations that we're a part of is by having all the facts at our disposal, including the benefits. You may still, at the end of the day, as a university administrator, say you aren't allowed to take grad students to the pub anymore. That's fine. Um, I would disagree with that, but at least if you're making that decision, having considered all of the the positive things that you'd be giving up is at least a defensible position to have. But right now, um, when, when we think about alcohol on one side is pleasure fun and on the other side are lawsuits and liver damage and all these costs, um, fun and pleasure are always going to lose out when you put it that way. But if you think about on the positive side, not just fun and pleasure, but, Enhance creativity, enhance bonding, um, enhance intimacy, getting past inhibitions. Your calculus, I think, will end up being a bit different, and that's all I'm trying to do is get people to have a a well-rounded and mature and scientifically and anthropologically well-informed view of chemical intoxicants.
0: Which is why I've been waiting for you to get this book done for so <laughs> <Yes>. long.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. So I'm glad I could give you the arguments you need.
0: <laughs> the The other thing, Ed, I wanted to ask you about this is, you know, with a lot of our public policy, it, it feels like to me, and it's just my interpretation that um, we optimize for edge cases. Yeah. So one asshole does, you know, one asshole tries to blow up a plane with his shoe and now we're all taking off our shoes and maybe that's the right decision. I, I, I don't know, but, but there's a lot of these edge case things where you and I are told we can't do something because some idiot who does that thing does a bad thing. And so therefore, and so, so, you know, I guess how much of the negativity, the puritanical point of view on alcohol is based on edge cases. You know, yeah. X percent hap- bad shit happens when people are drunk versus Y percent of good things that happen when people are drunk. D- is there
1: good data on that? No, but I think you're you're right. It's a it's a more general cognitive bias that's problematic. Is that we? Um, and then it, I think it gets enhanced in the modern world when we're worried about legal liability. I mean, you notice this. I always notice this. And uh, I remember the first time I lived in Europe, I was a grad student. I was in Germany studying German. And I walked out of my apartment I was living in. I knew they were doing some road construction, but um, I, I came out of my apartment in the morning to go to class. And they in the night, they had dug this trench. They were doing road work. They dug this like 12-foot deep trench in front of my building and thrown a board over it and had like this little flashing light and that was it. Like, it was just like, Hey, you should notice that there's a huge hole in front of your house. Here's a board. You can walk across the board, use it. And I remember thinking in the United States, you would never fucking do that, right? This would be surrounded by fences and they'd have to have a team of people 24 hours making sure no one got hurt. Um, And it's because of liability laws. So, so I think part of the edge case worrying is because of, you know, around the world, you have different degree, different types of liability rules. And in the U S and Canada, I think we're just, we're so hyper worried about liability that we let edge cases dictate policy. In a way that wouldn't be the case if we thought about things in a more global way. Um, the German attitude uh, seemed to be: if you fell in the trench, you're, you're a stupid. fucking moron. Pay attention. <laughs> you're a moron, pay attention when you're walking.
0: Yeah. You so, know, my wife and I built our home, and in California, I assume it's the same in most places in North America. If you're going to create a construction site, yeah. you have to buy this insurance that not only protects the workers there, which makes total sense to me. But you have to buy insurance that says that if an idiot hops that fence that you have to put up and say private construction, whatever the fucking sign has to say, an idiot jumps the fence, breaks their leg, they can sue you successfully. And so we buy insurance again. I mean, it's gone mental. And so uh, what I hear you saying is we don't have great data on sort of the edge cases but probably in North America, we are not uh, in tune with the positives of alcohol. Um, and yes, they're negatives. And yes, we have a broad, have to take a broad perspective, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is, if you and I sit down and crack open those IPAs and watch a fight together, we're going to be better friends.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's the reality of it. Right. And if we do it every night, well, it's bad for our health and it's bad for society. But if we do it every couple weekends, so what? Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. So let's let's have a more balanced view. Let's not be Neo Puritan ostriches sticking our heads in the sand and refusing to look at the positive sides of alcohol. Let's let's see the negatives but recognize the positives. And then and then we can as again as individuals and as organizations, then we're finally in a place to make intelligent decisions.
0: Amen. Hallelujah. Well, thank you for your legendary work. Thank you for writing this legendary book and uh, you're welcome back anytime. Thanks. It's a lot of fun. Well, there he is, the legendary Dr. Edward Slingerland. His new book is out. It's called Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. (laughs) And if you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did with Dr. Slingerland, why not share it with one of your close friends right now? Most podcast apps have a simple button you can press uh, on your phone and send it to them right now, and we would greatly appreciate it if you would consider sharing this podcast now coming up soon the legendary kevin maney multi-time best-selling author co-founder of category design advisors and co-author of play bigger he's coming up soon another one of my favorite uh, guests uh morgan wright is coming back he's uh, one of america's favorite security gurus and uh, we have a fascinating adhd uh inspired conversation about uh security policing technology and much more coming up soon. One of my favorite entrepreneurs, Iron Mike Stedman is coming. Uh, He's the founder of Ironbound Media in uh, in the New Jersey area. He's an extraordinary entrepreneur helping other entrepreneurs. And uh, really his area of focus is in making a difference for black veteran entrepreneurs and we get into all of that you're going to love meeting iron mike Stedman, and it has been too long since we've had Dushka zabata on so she is coming back she was our first guest and she is our most regularly appearing guest and she's coming back soon all right we would like to thank the legendary dr edward slingerland the book is drunk how we sipped, danced, and stumbled our way to civilization. Check it out wherever you get legendary books. My friends at onelifefully live.org are the nonprofit helping people dream, plan, and live your their best life. Check out one uh, lifefully.org. <laughs> My friends at bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistant. If you need an assistant, who will do a great job for you but will never get, get anywhere near you. Uh, that's bottleneck.online. My friends at Otranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. If you are a B2B company and you are looking to do a rapid relaunch of your website, check out At r e dot n e t today. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Podcast Network. And we would love it if you shared the shit out of it. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo, and he has got a new newsletter out called The Pivoteer. And if you're somebody looking at making a career change, then you should be subscribed to The Pivoteer by Jason DeFilippo. Check it out on Substack today. Sarah Knox. and, Jamie J. do legendal, legendal, <laughs> having a really hard time talking today. Legendary technical execution, and they build the aforementioned lockhead.com. Show notes by the handsome and talented GM Simon. And uh, Candy Dandy keeps all the trains running on time. I need to remind you to spread podcasts, not viruses. Uh, don't forget, Category Pirates makes a wonderful gift so uh, go check it out remember the fast lane is the fast lane you could get over to the right hand lane and let some of us get by now here couldn't you people listen to the tragically hip Joan Jett was right and don't forget drinking rum before noon doesn't make you a drunk it makes you a pirate um, thanks candy dandy love you mom and dad and hey Colin this podcast really ties the room together doesn't it today our deepest apologies go out to Scott Omelonic editor of Stink Magazine sorry Scott we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. We really do appreciate it. Stay healthy, stay safe. And until we're together again, follow your different.